Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash UET. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. Welcome to this peer voice activity on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Perry Elliott and Elena Arbello. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. It's a pleasure to be here today. My name is Elena Arbello, and I am the coordinator of the Familiar Cardiomyopathies and Southern Cardiac Death Syndromes Unit at the Hospital Clinic in Barcelona State. I have the great honor of co-chairing the 2023 ERC Guidance on Management of Cardiomyopathy with my colleague Juan Pablo Casqui from London. The purpose of this activity is to discuss the most notable updates or changes to the management of HCM in the 2023 ERC guidelines. So, when introducing the guidelines, I would like to highlight several aspects that we try to have at the core of the document. First, we put the focus on the patient pathway that has the cardiomyopathy mindset at its core, from presentation through initial assessment and diagnosis to management. We highlight the importance of considering cardiomyopathy as a cause of common clinical presentations like heart failure or arrhythmias and following the identification of the presenting phenotype, the importance of utilizing a multiparametric approach to arrive at a more etiology-specific diagnosis. Second, the importance of a multidisciplinary and coordinated approach to cardiomyopathies. And central to this approach is not only the individual patient, but also the family as a whole. Clinical findings in relatives are essential for understanding what happens to the patient and vice versa. And finally, in this document, we consider cardiomyopathies across the life course, from pediatric to adult age. A novel aspect of this guideline is the importance of cardiomagnetic resonance, not only for diagnosis, but also to monitor disease progression and aid stratification and management. In fact, CMR is recommended in all patients with cardiomyopathies and initial evaluation, and it should be considered during follow-up to monitor disease progression, aid stratification and management. And in families with a disease-causing variant, CMR should be considered in genotype-positive and phenotype-negative relatives. CMR may also be considered in case of no genetic findings. Another key aspect of the cardiomyopathy guidelines is genetic testing, which is recommended in all patients fulfilling diagnostic criteria for cardiomyopathy, where it can enable diagnosis, prognostication, therapeutic stratification, or reproductive management of the patient, or it can enable cascade genetic evaluation of the relatives who would otherwise be enrolled in long-term surveillance. So let's focus now on recommendations that are specific to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is the only of the cardiomyopathies for which there were existing guidance. In this 2023 guidance, what we have basically done is provide a focus update of that document. Many of the algorithms for diagnosis, symptom assessment, and management remain largely unchanged from 2014. But what we do see significant changes is the recommendations for medical treatment of left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. And here we have brand new recommendations to use 
cardiomyosin inhibitors, malacanthem in particular. So there's a two-way indication that malacanthem should be considered in addition to a beta blocker or, if this is not possible, with verapamil or daltiacin in symptomatic patients with resting or provoked LV obstruction, uh, LV outflow tract obstruction. And there's a second uh, class 2A recommendation that malacanthem should be considered as monotherapy in symptomatic adult patients with obstructive HCN that are either intolerant or have contraindications to standard medical therapy. This is based on the recently published Explorer HCN trial, where over a 30-week treatment where, uh, with malacanthem it showed a reduction of left ventricular outflow tract gradients and an improved exercise capacity compared with placebo. The drug was well tolerated and had a good safety profile. Only a small subset of patients developed transient LV systolic dysfunction, which resolved after temporary discontinuation of the drug. A later analysis at 120 weeks concluded that improvements in left ventricular outflow tract obstructions in symptoms and in anti-ProVMT were sustained over time. A second study, the Valor HCN study, evaluated patients with obstructive HCN that were referred for septal reduction therapy due to intractable symptoms. And in this study, Mavacatan significantly reduced the proportion of patients that met the criteria for septal reduction therapy, but this improvement was sustained over a follow-up period of 56 weeks, and thereby reducing the need of septal reduction therapies and representing a useful therapeutic option for patients. Furthermore, small CMR and echo sub-studies suggest that mavacantin may also lead to possible positive myocardial remodeling with reduction in myocardial mass, left ventricular wall thickness, and in left atrial volume. In the red wound ACM trial, a second drug, Afikam 10, uh, was also recently uh, shown in a phase two randomized placebo control study to reduce significantly the left ventricular outflow tract radiance, heart failure symptoms, and anti pro VMP levels in adult patients with symptomatic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. These preliminary results with Afikam 10 will be evaluated in the ongoing phase three trial the Sequoia HCN. Most of the recommendations for septal reduction therapy remain largely unchanged, but I'd like to highlight a couple of novelties. First, we have an, a brand new class one recommendation that septal myectomy specifically, rather than septal alcohol ablation, is recommended in children with an indication for septal reduction therapy, as well as in adults who have an indication for SRTs and other lesions requiring surgical intervention. A second, a new class 2B indication that septal reduction therapy may be considered in expert centers with low complication rates in individuals with a lesser degree of symptoms who also have moderate to severe mitral regurgitation due to sound, AF, or moderate to severe left atrial dilatation. So this is the new algorithm for the management of symptomatic left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. We retain the class 1 indication for beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, verapamil or daltiacin, but now 
there is an option for using mavacantene as a second-line therapy, as an alternative to disoparamide. And of course, in those patients that remain symptomatic despite medical therapy, septal reduction therapies remain a class 1 indication. Now, moving to the area of prevention of sudden cardiac death, in particular, primary prevention is essential aspect of management. We retain the class 1 indication to use the HCM sudden cardiac death risk calculator as the method for estimating the risk of sudden cardiac death at five years in adult patients. But we also have a new class one recommendation to use validated pediatric risk scores, for example, the HCM risk kids model, as a way to estimate the risk of sudden cardiac death at five years in individuals below the age of 16. And this should be done at baseline, but also during the follow-up. In relation to prevention of sudden cardiac death in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we also have a number of additional new recommendations for primary prevention. In patients with left ventricular apical aneurysms, we have a TUA recommendation for decisions around ICD implantation. And this should be based on the assessment of risk using the validated risk models and not solely on the presence of the left ventricular apical aneurysm. And in patients with an estimated low five-year risk that is below 4%, there are two new recommendations, both class 2B. Of course, for secondary prevention, ICD implantation remains a class 1 indication. Importantly, these validated tools should be really uh, considered as part of a decision-making process rather than as an absolute requirement for, absolute, uh, for uh, ICD implantation. And in fact, the task force was really keen to highlight this issue of the importance of shared decision-making, particularly acknowledging the challenges associated with defining specific thresholds for acceptable risk. Certainly, the shared decision-making should be based on real-world data that takes into account individual preferences, beliefs, circumstances, and values. But importantly, we need to highlight and acknowledge the gaps in evidence and share this with the patients. And also, we should take into account competing risks, those of, of the disease like car failure or stroke, but also others like age or comorbidities. With that, I would like to conclude that we now have the first international guidance for management of all cardiomyopathy subtypes. These guidance focus on multimodal imaging and genetic testing for a more precise diagnosis. And the guidelines include the first-in-class Mavacantene a targeting obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy pathophysiology. And we should take into account that Aficantin may also be an alternative in the near future. Thank you. Hello, my name is Perry Elliott. I'm a professor of cardiovascular medicine at University College in London and a consultant cardiologist at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. And in this second presentation, we will be considering the integration of some of the recent recommendations from the 2023 European Society of Cardiology Guidelines for Cardiomyopathy into clinical practice, focusing particularly on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Dr. Arbella has already outlined some of the key points in these guidelines, and here in this presentation we're going to consider a number of practical aspects of the guideline, focusing on clinical risk stratification, 
the use of multimodality cardiac imaging, the role of genetic testing, and the management of left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Sudden cardiac death is a well-recognized complication of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But fortunately for most patients, this risk only applies in a relatively small number of individuals. So one of the key priorities for the assessment of patients with this disease is to identify that small group of individuals who are at risk and who may benefit from a prophylactic implantable cardioverter defibrillator. The approach recommended in the 2023 ESC guidelines is to follow a systematic assessment of clinical history combined with the evaluation of a relatively small number of well-recognized clinical risk markers and to incorporate this information into a tool developed for the purpose of identifying high-risk patients known as Hokum Risk SCD or Sudden Cardiac Death. The variables that we include in this algorithm are age, maximum left ventricular wall thickness, left atrial size, left ventricular outflow tract gradient, a family history of sudden cardiac death, the presence of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia on halter monitoring, and unexplained syncope. By using the Hokum Risk tool, we can generate a, an individualized risk estimate at five years uh, for patients, which can then be used in a discussion around the pros and cons and the appropriateness of an ICD implant. In the guideline, there are indicative thresholds of risk to aid this process of decision-making. But one of the advances in the guideline is to recognize that there is no specific threshold for acceptable risk and that the decision for an ICD implant should be highly individualized and follow the best principles of shared decision-making. So the, the 2023 guideline recommends cardiac MRI in pretty much most patients with a diagnosis of cardiomyopathy. This will inevitably be challenging in some healthcare systems due to the availability and the cost of cardiac MRI. Nevertheless, the, the guideline committee felt that it was important to recognize that cardiac MRI is essentially now a standard test that provides really critical information necessary for the characterization of disease, for planning treatment, and in also determining the differential diagnosis. So the, so the 2023 guideline is, if you like, setting a benchmark for the use of MRI. And hopefully this will promote wider access and use of this technique in everyday clinical practice. So both ECHO and cardiac MRI provide important information about left ventricular wall thickness, its severity and distribution, um, as well as left ventricular function, both systolic and diastolic function. But the real advantage of cardiac MRI is that it provides us with tissue characterization. So it can show us the presence of left ventricular scar, which may be a consideration when we're thinking about prognosis and in particular, trying to predict whether a patient will be at risk of sudden cardiac death, or even more importantly, whether that patient is on a trajectory towards left ventricular systolic impairment. Where MRI can be particularly helpful is in flagging up patients who have 
a particular etiology for their left ventricular hypertrophy. And perhaps the best example of this is cardiac amyloidosis, where we see very characteristic uh, dynamics of the tracer gadolinium. Um, the other disease which can be detected um, using MRI is Fabry's disease, where we see, again, very characteristic tissue characteristics related to the deposition of sphingolipid within the myocardium. One of the most important innovations in the 2023 Cardiomyopathy Guideline is a class one indication to perform genetic testing in patients who fulfill diagnostic criteria for cardiomyopathy. This advice is now based on cumulative evidence showing the value of genetic testing in establishing a diagnosis, in helping to determine prognosis, and also in therapeutic stratification. In the context of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, one of the, the key elements by which genetic testing can assist patients and physicians is in cascade genetic evaluation of family members who may be at risk of inheriting the disease, and also in advice on reproduction and potentially on planning families. And the reason for this is that we recognize that all cardiomyopathy subtypes can be genetic in origin. And that in particular circumstances, knowledge of the gene and sometimes even the individual variant can be used in planning therapy and in particular in determining prognosis. The recommendation to do genetic testing in all people with cardiomyopathy will present um, healthcare practitioners with some challenges. The, the process of genetic testing does require a, a certain amount of expertise prior to testing because patients and individuals um, may or may not require or need testing or desire testing. And so it's very important to explain the pros and cons to people and also the consequences of testing for them and their families. There's also uh, a requirement for expertise in interpreting genetic variants and then transmitting that information to families. And this is one of the key reasons behind the recommendation for the at least the initial assessment and management of patients with cardiomyopathy to take place within a multidisciplinary team that has within it those skill sets. So cardiac myosin inhibitors are a really important step forward in the management of patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But their use does present a number of new challenges to even the most expert centers. Uh, the requirement to do uh, regular echoes as we uptitrate the drug is if effectively meaning that we're having to create a new pathway, often nurse-led, for the administration of the drug and its monitoring during the uptitration phase. And this, of course, makes this quite difficult to translate into more general cardiology practice or units that see only a relatively small number of patients. There has been some speculation as to how the use of Mavicamptum will influence the pathway to treatment for patients with obstruction. For example, will we start to see a reduction in the number of people being referred for septomyectomy or alcohol septal ablation? The, the evidence that seems to be emerging is that whilst there is an initial tail-off in the number of referrals, 
This renewed focus on the diagnosis and management of outflow tract obstruction is resulting actually in an increase in the number of referrals. And of course, as we recognize from the Explorer trial, myosin inhibitors may not relieve symptoms in some patients with unfavorable anatomy. So I think it is likely that we're going to see an increase in activity across the entire pathway from drug therapy through to septal reduction therapy, with hopefully, I think, greater awareness amongst the general cardiology community of this as a cause of symptoms in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mavacamptin should only be used in patients who have an injection fraction of more than 50% because of its potential negative inotropic effects. The administration of, of Mavacamptin is prescribed using a specific protocol that requires echocardiography at each titration step, measuring the ejection fraction and the response of the gradient. And the aim of this this protocol is to ensure that one can achieve the maximum effective dose safely without causing significant systolic impairment. Importantly, we recognize that the response to Mavacamptin is at least partially determined by variants in an important liver cytochrome, CYP2C19. And there is now guidance in, in Europe that actually genotyping patients for their CYP2C19 variant should be performed in order to adapt the uptitration protocol and again ensure safety of the drug. It is recognized in the 2023 guideline that many patients with symptomatic obstruction may be refractory to medical therapy. And this is likely to apply to the use of Mavacamptin as much as to beta blockers, calcium tagonists, and diazepiramide. When we have a patient who has significant symptoms, who is refractory to conventional medication or in whom side effects are problematic, then at that moment, one should give consideration to the use of septal reduction therapies, which usually means either surgical septal myectomy or alcohol septal ablation. And the decision to proceed with septal reduction therapy should always be performed in the context of a multidisciplinary team with the necessary expertise to ensure that the right patient for the right procedure is selected. In expert hands, septal reduction therapy is associated with significant improvements in exercise tolerance and symptoms and good long-term prognosis. The 2023 Guidelines on cardiomyopathy, I, I genuinely believe, represent a, a watershed in the way in which we approach heart muscle disease. We've, for decades, defined these conditions by, simply by describing what we see when we take a picture of the heart. Is the heart thick? Is the ventricle dilated? But I think what we're now seeing is that, is that almost cliche within the guideline, the cardiomyopathy mindset is a recognition that actually we're seeing a very complex family of different conditions, yes, defined by a morphology, yes, defined by a function, but for which there are a large number of different causes. I think over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see an increasing emphasis on the cause of heart muscle conditions. With the exciting prospect of disease modification 
So actually changing the way in which all of these phenotypes behave over time. And even allowing us to imagine perhaps prevention for the development of these phenotypes as we start to understand the molecular mechanism of disease and develop the tools for preventing disease development. I hope you've enjoyed the, these two presentations on focusing on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And we sincerely hope that you'll find the information that we've presented will help you manage the next patient you see in a more systematic and more effective way for both you and the patient. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.